Welcome everyone to another episode of the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact, here with my co-hosts, guys. J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact. So I think we started a new thing last week, kind of, or last month, where we um, played a little game called Where is Andrew? But I think this time you're actually in Boston. So maybe the game is Where Was Andrew? Yeah, Where Is Andrew is usually a hard enough game for me to win, just to remember where I am at any given moment. Uh, But it's true. In this case, I am in Boston. I recognize my surroundings. And um, I have been various places, including a, a run within one week that took me to Minneapolis, then Denver, then Chicago. And then the next week I was in New Hampshire. And so the, uh, the reason I mentioned all those places is one of those uh, stops, the one in Denver, was for the Continuums of Service Conference, the Western Region Campus Compact Conference. And it was, I wasn't there for as long as I wanted because I had to get to these various other places. But it was a fantastic gathering in Denver, tremendous energy, I think about 350 people there, and um, I took the opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the fundamental commitments that motivate our work at Campus Compact, and I had some great conversations with people uh, afterward responding to the the ideas that I had kind of thrown out, so I really enjoyed that. Um, in both Minnesota and New Hampshire, I was at one of my favorite kinds of events, which is uh, campus compact end of year awards events for our state compacts and yeah. again opportunity yeah they're they're always incredibly fun you see fantastic people and learn about terrific things that they've been doing so that is always great and again a few hundred people at each event and tremendous energy uh, and then in Chicago I was at the um, the Midwest Political Science Association meeting where we had a panel on uh, the, a real kind of uptick in civic engagement activity coming from colleges and universities and uh, the opportunity to connect with some colleagues from other organizations who are leading some of that work, uh, some of the accrediting agencies. So it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, and I am uh, in, in Boston right now, but then off to uh, back out west to uh, state of Washington and to Utah over the next few weeks, and I can report about those travels on next month's podcast. Well, that sounds fantastic. Those are all exciting. And yeah, our awards are coming up next week. So it is that time of year, the most wonderful time of the year, where I feel a little like Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and Andrew, the offer still stands. If you need a note taker, someone to arrange your luggage, I'm your guy. <laughs> Just let me know, okay? JR is really pushing this. You know? uh, <laughs> give it up, JR. Yeah, that's it. Uh, oh, and speaking of awards, can I throw in a plug? Uh, right now, uh, the window is open for nominations for the Thomas Ehrlich Award for Civically Engaged Faculty. This is, uh, you know, Campus Compact's sort of most prized uh, honor for faculty who are doing fabulous work and engaged teaching, engaged scholarship, and uh, changing the institutions they're part of. The nominations are open until June 6th, and you can find more information on our website, compact.org. Yeah, and folks might remember that one of our recent interviewees, Robin Saha, was one of the, uh, was last year's recipient of that award, so you can see the kind of great work that, that we recognize with that. One other quick plug I thought we should do is that we're doing a bunch of hiring, right guys? That is right. Yeah, I almost forgot, but we have um, director positions open in a couple of places. And then, um, well, Andrew, do you want to talk about those? Sure. Uh, The the director positions, one is for the kind of newly reorganized Campus Compact for the Great Plains, which comprises Nebraska, Kansas, and South Dakota. That position will be based at the University of Nebraska-Omaha. And then we also have an open position for what is just coming online now, the brand new Campus Compact for Virginia. And there's tremendous enthusiasm in that state to launch a compact, some great institutions at work. The position will be based at James Madison University 
which is itself uh, one of the great leaders in this work, as is University of Nebraska-Omaha. So we're excited about those positions. And then, yeah, if you go to uh, compact.org slash jobs, you'll see those positions along with positions in various places around the country, uh, leading VISTA programs and playing other roles in our compacts. And just by the way, you can also find other positions posted there in, you know, at our member institutions, uh, in engagement centers, uh, for uh, civic engagement leadership, uh, all sorts of roles. So compact.org slash jobs. Yeah, so go get a job. Join us. <laughs> Maybe we'll have you on the podcast someday. So there's an incentive. That is true. We're taking a new job. Um, all right, well, I w- want to make sure we get right to our interview this month. I think I say this every month, but I'm really very excited about the interview this month. Um, as a political science nerd, which we've discussed in the past, uh, interviewing Kathy Kramer was really exciting for me, and reading her book was fun. So Kathy Kramer is um, a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's a professor in the Department of Political Science, but also is the director of the Mortgage Center for Public Service, doing great work there. Um, she recently came out with a book, The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin and the Rise of Scott Walker, that really takes a different approach to public opinion. And that's one of the things she's been most noted for is, you know, instead of these big public opinion polls, which we've seen recently may not have as much um, usability as we we previously thought. What she did is she went out around the state and sat with people where they were already meeting. So in rural areas, she went to breakfast groups and some people who play cards in a gas station and a lot of different kinds of um, informal groups that were meeting across the state, sat down with them, came back and met with them several times, listened to them, talked to them. She told me that she started out trying to look at some class issues and ended up kind of hitting on this notion of rural consciousness, that people were making judgments and decisions about about politics, about how things function in their state, based on their identity as rural people and based on this feeling that as rural people, they're getting the short end of the stick. You know, that, that urban things are better in urban areas, more resources are available in urban areas. Um, lots of those kind of things and and I definitely recommend that people read the book it was fantastic and as can be imagined um, though the book came out before this most recent election cycle there's a lot of interest in her viewpoint and what she learned from that research since um, with all the conversation about rural voters and how they feel and that their resentment towards establishment and all kinds of things like that. So she has been all over the country talking about it and we were just excited to find a few minutes of her time to talk a little bit more about what the implications are of what she learned for higher education community engagement and partnering specifically with rural communities. So let's go right to that interview and then we'll be back. Welcome Kathy Kramer to the Compact Nation podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. It's really my honor. So I wanted to start with just asking, with your most recent book and your research really looking at rural consciousness, how did you end up deciding to study that topic? Well, I honestly, I didn't set out to study rural consciousness or rural versus urban divides at all. I uh, study public opinion in general, and um, the thing that most fascinates me is how people make sense of politics. And back in 2007, I was really interested in the way social class identity uh, matters for how people interpret politics or make sense of politics. And so I I sampled a a variety of communities across the state of Wisconsin, several dozen, um, on the idea that if I uh, sampled a variety of communities, um, I would, uh, if I was doing field work in each of those places, I would encounter people from a variety of walks of life and likely get some variation on kind of their social class backgrounds. Because I had sampled people in a, in a bunch of different types of communities, I sort of became aware of the rural versus urban divide that looking back on it, I should have known existed, but I honestly, 
I had no clue, even though I've lived most of my life in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm from neighboring Iowa. So, uh, you know, so many things, so many different parallels and a lot of it really stood out to me. Um, But I think for our listeners, there are just a lot of implications for how we think about educating students to participate in our democracy and how we think about partnering in rural communities. And I wanted to start there. Um, What is your advice for researchers, for people trying to do community engagement, for approaching rural communities and kind of keeping in mind and working with a lot of the you know, the distrust and those kind of issues that exist and that you really encountered in your research? Well, I think it's helpful to be aware of the distrust and to know if you are someone coming from um, a a campus in in a more urban place, just to be aware of it because even if you have um, the most openness and the, the best intentions in the world, that there, there is, there is a widespread perception out there that people in more urban settings sort of, you know, look down on people in rural communities and and see them as less educated and less sophisticated. And so kind of knowing that that percept, you might encounter that perception, it hopefully will um, remind you to tread kind of carefully and to err on the side of listening more than talking and on presenting yourself as a learner rather than a teacher. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, for many for many folks, that kind of orientation is so central to the work we do in civic engagement, right? So, or it should be. And so yeah, exactly. You know, it won't be unfamiliar, but that those kind of skills of um, just being aware that you are, um, a guest, and that the the your first instinct should be to listen rather than to uh, inform. Um, will be will go a long way to, toward reaching out to folks in rural communities. I think. Yeah. So, do you think that that some of the distrust you found that you know you were specifically asking about um, people at public institutions and from urban areas, but do you think it extends beyond that? Do you, do you think there's a divide, sort of that town gown thing? Does that translate here, even if campuses are in rural areas? Yeah, I think so, because part of um, the rural versus urban divide encapsulates so many um, different divides, um, and um, yeah, one of them is sort of the the formally educated versus those with less formal education and so anytime we're talking about interacting with an institution of higher education I think there is some wariness of people who aren't associated with that institution of you know how how they're going to be treated or how they're going to be looked at by people who are you know employees or students or faculty members or staff members at, at an institution of higher ed so yeah, even in a more rural setting, I think there, there's likely to be a town-gown divide. Right. So just thinking about some of the practicalities of that, one of the questions that you know one of my colleagues suggested was really around um, who should we be thinking about partnering with in rural areas? Because when I think about who you went out and met with, um, they are groups, but they're not groups in the sense that they have a 501c3 nonprofit, right? So it yeah. might look different, and I'm wondering if you have advice on, you know, what what does it mean to partner with community in those areas, and how might we think about it differently? Well, that's a great idea. I mean, it's a great question. That um, there are a lot of informal networks in. Yeah, I was, was going to say there's a lot of informal networks in smaller communities, but it's not unlike in any place. I mean, even in a you know in a very densely populated urban center, so much of life is about informal networks. You know, in your neighborhood or your building or in the place where you work. And I think maybe the difference is that in these smaller communities, there aren't as many sort of formal organizations, formal institutions, and so tapping into those informal networks can be really useful. I think um, one really important source of 
the way people interact, though, in rural communities is oftentimes churches, and I, I say churches in particular, and not just religious institutions in general. Um, um, and that, so it might, it might be worthwhile thinking about are there ways mm-hmm. to connect with churches, or you know, if there are other types of religious institutions in the community that you're, are you, you're thinking about tapping into those too. Um, that yeah, it might be it might be a great way to connect up with people. Absolutely. So one of the other things that really struck me is you kind of tapped into this broader discussion right now about facts Mm -hmm. and about whether facts actually move people and finding often that that they don't by themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that that it's not that people are dumb and (laughs) incapable of understanding facts. It's just not it's just that those aren't their primary motivation. And I think that has a lot of implications for researchers who want their research to have an impact on the world. Right. So what what are your thoughts on how, how do we connect what we're learning in higher ed to people who aren't going to be mo- moved by a set of facts or data points? Well, that's, that's a great question, too. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think the thing to keep in mind is that with human processing there are facts and then there are the lenses through which we we see those facts or interpret those facts and I mean, facts facts have to matter <laughs> we can't um, you can't have a healthy democracy that doesn't make choices based in good hard evidence but at the same time we know again like from community engagement work we know that all the facts in the in the world aren't going to matter if they're conveyed by someone who's not also conveying respect and Mm -hmm. we shouldn't expect people to adopt evidence or take it to heart or use it in their own life or in their work if they're being given that information in a way that doesn't resonate with their own personal experience doesn't make sense according to what they know about the world and and or is given to them by people who they think are not credible and are not people who respect um, who they are in the world. So, you know, I think anybody who wants to share information with people outside of their um, kind of academic network has to understand that that information has to be communicated in a way that people will will want to grab onto. And that's not just making it exciting, that's putting in a way that meaningful f- for folks who might have reason, or might in the past have been skeptical about that kind of information. Absolutely, I think that's so interesting and so important. Um, you talked a lot also in your book about the need to make our resources visible and also kind of parallel to that I think is I, I love the story of uh, how they were talking about you know researchers coming in and there's all these you know things in the lake yeah and then, so they can tell this research is happening but they know things about that lake and no one's talking to them about that so it seems like these these two parallel ideas of it's not just about doing things in rural communities it's about you know, how you do them, how you communicate about them, that kind of thing, involving more people or making sure they know the impact, that kind of thing. Have you seen any good models of, of doing that or good ways of going about those things? Yeah, I mean, yes, there are definitely great models. Um, for example, the one that comes to mind immediately is in Wisconsin, there's a, a, a community called Trempolo that um, uh, some anthropologists here have been um, doing some excavation and some digging in in the community for years now. And um, along the way, they've started to involve community members and the local library and really brought local residents into the project as opposed to just arriving and having this mysterious excavation going on in the middle of their community, right. you know? And I really think that's I mean, it's been so engaging, um, and I, I think that's a, a great model because 
the local community members have been totally fascinated about this, you know, past that's right underneath their feet that they didn't realize. And it's engaged all kinds of young people who, you know, have is sparked an interest in anthropology um, and archaeology. And um, I think the, the difference between that model and how people would have <laughs> reacted if there had been some mysterious people arriving with all kinds of equipment and tearing up <laughs> the ground um, in their town, you know, would, it would have been like night and day. Um, so I, I think it's, it's possible to do. I also think a lot of times researchers kind of assume that people aren't going to care what they're up to and aren't that interested. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, once, you know, those of us involved in community engagement work, you know, that feeling of once you get the bug and how delightful it is to share knowledge and to collaborate with people um, from different walks of life or who aren't in your area of study. Uh, it's, it's just so enjoyable and so rewarding. So it's, I think it's a little daunting to researchers that at times they're not quite sure where to begin. But I think it's, in some respects, way more rewarding than, than they can understand before trying it. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic. So you also talk a lot about your book, in your book, about the need for bridging divides. So beyond, you know, community engaged research and that kind of thing, what do you think are ways colleges and universities could be active players in bridging the divides? One great place to start is with our students and to model kind of openness and listening and conversation with our students. And that's so much easier said than done. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, if we can model it within our own campus communities, that's a start. But I also think that the bridging divides, I, I think part of the essence is listening and part of the essence of it is is adopting an attitude of, of welcomingness. <laughs> that's not really a term I realize, but being kind of open to other people as opposed to starting from the stance of um, kind of a zero-sum society or we're, we're each in this for our own gain. And one way I think that campuses can do that is to literally open their campus as much as possible to, to welcome people onto campus to enjoy the things that maybe we take for granted from museums to um, to events to uh, the sharing and the creation of knowledge. And I think oftentimes in, in community engagement work, there's an emphasis on getting off campus and engaging with people beyond campus. But sometimes we forget that people like to be invited into our campus community too. And right. that might be that might be one really important way for campuses to um, bridge divides with more rural communities. Sometimes there are ways that we, I think, we, well, I think we can do that in a whole variety of ways. But one way I've been thinking about recently a lot is here at UW-Madison, um, many people from smaller communities around the state come to Madison for um, high school sports playoff events, right. you know, from football to wrestling, volleyball, it's just many different um, playoff events. And it seems to me that that's an opportunity to, to show kind of model an ethic of welcomingness and an interest in people from other parts of the state. I don't quite know precisely how we can do that, but um, I think there are examples like that where we can sort of seize the moment to try to, to try to reach out. Yeah, I and I think that's such a great idea, and and again, have seen so many so many similar things in Iowa, and just opportunities of getting people more involved in colleges and universities who wouldn't typically. So when it comes to students, you know, there was the perception in your book that many in rural areas had that students from their parts of the state were not going to the the big public institutions in Wisconsin, and and then I think you showed in your research that many were, and many were very successful, and so. Are there ways that 
you know, those rural students being in that setting can can be ways of, of bridging that divide and helping to both bring the perspective of a, a person who grew up in a rural area more to the forefront during their college experience and kind of, you know, go back home and represent some of what they're doing? There must be, right? I think, you know, <laughs> that would, I, would, I would hope that there would be. And I think um, in the classroom is a place to start where, uh, you know, the burden is on the instructors to, to create environments in which the perspective of students from smaller communities would be welcome. Um, right. But it's really tricky, right? Because, I mean, honestly, so much of what we're talking about in terms of bridging um, divides between rural communities and urban communities, we, we've struggled with in other respects, right? And I'm thinking in particular um, at Wisconsin, for example, our struggle to bridge divides between white students and students right. of color. And, you know, we know, you know, it, it's not a great idea to teach a class in which there are students of color, for example, and look to them and hope that they represent the perspective of students of color, right? I mean, it's- That's exactly what I thought well, of, yes. it's very, and so it's very tricky because you want to create an atmosphere in which those perspectives are welcome, and yet you don't want to place a burden on the students who are feeling, and often rightly so, marginalized. So I don't, you know, I think it, it has to be in the classroom, but campus-wide just to create, somehow create a culture that embraces the fact that people are on a, can't like intentionally, we try to create student bodies of many different people so that we can learn from each other and figure out how to do this thing of living in a democracy with one another and figuring out how to treat each other with respect and civility and, and govern each other. Um, so I think instructors have a long way to go to create those welcoming environments, but it has to be beyond just the classroom too. Um, for rural students in particular, I, I think oftentimes um, there there are there are opportunities within the residence halls to do some of this work because um, part of what I hear from parents in smaller communities is sort of this fear of what is their kid going to be able to make it when they suddenly move to a bigger city to go to college and I think a lot of those concerns are about around the living situation. So I'm not quite sure what it would look like. And honestly, there are probably people who are experts in residence life who have tried a million things already and know much more about this than I. But I think just in the living environment is an opportunity to you know, have students get to know and respect each other's backgrounds much more. Right, and just thinking about how overwhelming it can be, you know, to yeah. come to such a different environment, which I think we do think about with a lot of different kinds of students, but um, but it's this one in particular. Mm -hmm. I was just really curious to know if you've had a chance to go back to some of these groups since the book came out. Yeah, and not a ton, but some of them, and, and as many as possible I've returned to in person to give them you know, hand deliver a copy of the book. Others I've had to send through the mail um, just because logistically it's been difficult to get back to some of them. But yeah, there's a few, um, there's a few in particular I've been focusing on that are more rural groups um, that, um, that I know that there are quite a few people in these groups who voted for Donald Trump in the presidential election. And so I've been very curious about their reactions to the election and and how they're making sense of it, his administration. So yeah, I have been back to a few. Have you gotten many reactions to your book from those folks? You know, nothing negative. So either they're super <laughs> nice to me or um, they just haven't had time to read it. And you know, some of the folks, when I give them a copy of the book, they, it's clear that they're not gonna read it, but they're they're touched that, that um, touched, is that a great word? word to put it like they're they're moved by the fact that I've written a book um, 
based in part on their own thoughts and experiences. Um, one thing that comes up often is people, some people ask me, you know, aren't they upset by the title? Aren't they upset by the term resentment? And I haven't had many conversations about this, but for the most part, when I bring that question up, people say, they're not quite understand what I'm asking. And then they'll say, well, we are resentful, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's a word that uh, they have used in conversations in almost, you know, decade that I've known them. So, so far, um, they've not been critical. Instead, they've, they've been um, grateful that um, someone listened, I think. Mm-hmm. So I felt that your book ended on a really hopeful note. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> that's at least, maybe that's what I was looking for. <laughs> But, you know, I was really struck by, um, you know, the idea that it's not it's not complicated, but what we need is people who, um, quote, operate on the belief that all people are at root good and deserving of respect. Um, so are you hopeful? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I am. And for, for the reasons you've just mentioned, I mean, um, two main things, really. One is that in all honesty, it's been a pretty bizarre experience for me to have written this book and have had this book get so much attention. And it's bizarre in the sense I, I just, you know, didn't expect it. And it's meant all kinds of just amazing opportunities and, and, and incredible conversations with people, like being invited to do this podcast, you know? I mean, it's really, uh, um, it's been unusual. And part of the bizarreness of it is that it isn't, um, complicated. I mean, the the basic act of going to people and spending time with them and listening to them and then trying as best as you can to to represent their views seems pretty simple to me. And yet, it's been amazing just how hungry people have been to to hear what I've learned. You know, so it is rare. It's so rare. The other thing that gives me hope is just my own personal experience with these folks. In doing this research, so in these, in a lot of these smaller communities, you know, I walked in representing so much of what I learned across the years. They resent, you know, I'm this social scientist from the flagship university, living in one of the major cities in the state, and yet we had a great time together. Um, you know, sometimes the conversations were difficult and. Some of the things they said were disturbing. Maybe some of the things I said were disturbing to them. Um, but we nevertheless um, figured out how to communicate and respect one another. And that, that gives me a ton of hope. Good. Well, Kathy Kramer, it's been so great to have you on. Um, her book is The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin and the Rise of Scott Walker. I highly recommend it um, for anyone listening in terms of how we do higher community engagement and just ways of thinking about the state of our world right now. So thank you for being on. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It was really great talking with you. All right. So we're back. Uh, Hopefully people got a lot of interesting ideas and, and certainly things to think about from that interview. I just keep seeing this theme come up a lot. I just read another column today about um, rural voters in Iowa and what needs to be done to engage them. And it came back to that theme of listening, of this feeling in rural areas that there's a condescension and smugness from people in urban areas towards them and their viewpoints. And what generally constitutes talking to rural voters isn't really listening and isn't really valuing their viewpoints. So that's really sticking with me. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up in a rural area, but my mom did, a lot of my family did. And uh, I guess I I feel a lot of concern of coming across that way and certainly wouldn't want to. And it's something I'll be thinking a lot about. And I think it's important for anyone in higher ed who's looking to serve rural communities to be really aware of, of not just how you think you come across, but how you might come across to others and just really going out of your way to 
make clear that you're there to listen. I don't know. What did you guys take away from it? I agree. Uh, So I grew up in a rural community. I'm a first-gen college student. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Kathy. And I also enjoyed that she got to the heart of the stories from these individuals. And around the piece of listening and the idea of facts don't matter. And sometimes we may assume that facts don't matter with people who live in rural communities. But the idea that they do, it has to do with if it comes from people they trust in the community and in a way that's meaningful to them. And I thought a lot about episode six of the Compact Nation podcast and Yasin Ajibi, one of the Newman Civic Fellows who Andrew interviewed for that episode, and Yaz talking about the pipeline in Vermont and how it was more important to talk with the local folks about trespassing issues and having to give up their farmland more so than it was to talk about environmental justice. And Yaz, uh, talking about the idea that, that Yaz had to go in and figure out the community, figure out what made them tick and what they cared about. And I think there's a lesson there and also in the work of Kathy of listening more than talking, learning rather than teaching And that takes a lot of bravery to do it, but I think that's what we have to do in order to bridge some of these divides. Yeah, I've just been struck both in the context of conversations of Kathy's book uh, and the recent book by uh, Arlie Hochschild, Strangers in Their Own Land, uh, which the subtitle of that is Anger and Mourning on the American Right. So it's a, a book that's dealing with a set of related themes. And I've ended up in a few conversations with people about these in the context of their own uh, civic engagement, community engagement efforts on campuses. And I think really people are asking questions. I was with some folks at UNC Asheville, for example, who were uh, talking about how much easier it was logistically for them to connect with people in the city of Asheville, but how they really did want to start thinking about how they could connect with rural communities around them that were further afield but uh, but had just as much reason to have uh, to be connected with and served by the public university in North Carolina as people living in the city. And, and the other thing I want to say, because this also made me think about that, is that, you know, there in North Carolina, they were certainly talking about a rural population that is itself at least racially diverse. And uh, it's certainly true. I mean, I know this is true in, in Iowa, and it was true where I used to live in Minnesota, that there is actually significant ethnic diversity uh, and racial diversity in rural communities. There are many communities with significant Latino populations, many communities with significant, uh, in Minnesota, at least Southeast Asian populations. And I say that because I think sometimes people just imagine when we're talking about rural people, we're talking about white people. And that's just really not true in lots of parts of the United States. So I think thinking about the rural-urban divide as something where race can certainly be a factor, but it's not exactly the same thing as the racial divide is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And I think that Kathy gave some very concrete ideas for folks in higher education. I was grateful for that. I thought her example about the archaeological dig and you know, really involving the community and getting them excited about what you're doing is not hard, right? I mean, <laughs> right. maybe logistically it is, and it's taking the time to do it, but... Um, you know, it's not that there's some tricky mystery to this necessarily. It's just about taking the time. And I guess to me, that's comforting. Yeah, I think she said nothing was rare, but people are hungry to understand. And that's what she walked away from the whole experience thinking. Uh, and that made me realize that there is definitely a rural and urban divide. This whole idea that nothing she did was out of the ordinary or rare, right? It's sitting down and having conversations with individuals. Uh, But because we're so hungry to understand that process, I just walked away really feeling like, yes, exactly. That is why there's the divide, right? And of course, as I always think, it all comes back to community organizing. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the only thing that really works one-to-one conversations with people. right yeah yep um all right well should we talk a little about our pop culture corner as we've been here i have a new one so i'm Uh-oh. gonna launch right into all it right. and you guys are not prepared because we didn't talk about this in advance but 
as I, we were talking about this and, you know, just the divides in our, in our world, right? We've got rural and urban within our own country and, you know, right and left. We've got more divides between countries with some of these nationalist and populist movements. And what's clear to me is what we need is aliens. <laughs> aliens? Well, yes. So I'm reading this. Tell book. us more. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it. Right. It's obvious. Um, no, I'm reading this book, Sleeping Giants. Uh, it's by Sylvan Nouvelle. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it's really good. It's sci-fi and it's about it's about aliens on Earth. It's much more complicated than that. And but one of the themes that I was just reading is um, this idea that you know, once it's Earth versus aliens, all of those other divisions get somewhat erased, right? We we're we're together, united right? <laughs> as people of Earth because we have that common enemy or threat. So, you know, there we go. Aliens. Well, I think we're getting closer and closer to discovering, right? <laughs> that there might be <laughs> there you go. alien life. Yeah, the, pre- the president's going to send someone to Mars. So, you know. Oh, hmm. Yep. Well, my pop culture corner <laughs> is I have been reading the book The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And y'all, I just have to say this. I cannot put this book down. I'm almost done. I have one chapter left. And it's a book about an African-American teenage girl who goes to an all-white private high school and what her life is like having to live between two worlds. She still lives in the neighborhood she grew up in, which is an economically distressed area on the other side of town. And the coach shifting that she has to do in both worlds. And then she witnesses a police brutality shooting. And because she's the witness to that, she goes on a trial with a grand jury and uh, the conversations that are happening between the two communities in which she lives. It's just fascinating. And she's really stuck between two worlds. And I think just pop culture wise, uh, conversations that we're having across difference, but also uh, about um, divides and um, equality and, and such, it really made me think about going all the way back to episode four and our conversation with Ashley Ford about the lens in which we view the world. And as our students are coming to our campuses, uh, we need to check our privilege and think about the lens from which we view the world. And um, are we making our students feel comfortable and at home? And so that's just one thing that I've been thinking about as I've listened to this book. I will also say relating it back to the idea of community engagement in higher education and thinking about faculty and staff and their roles in a community, thinking about the coach shifting that they have to do to make their work make sense, which I know is like a totally different level of, of where Angie Thomas was going when she wrote the book hate you give but it makes me think about the code shifting that happens in those situations and how sometimes our engaged faculty may not always feel completely at home totally and actually so before i jump into what what i was going to say just that i think really does link to the conversation we were having about kathy's book earlier in that you know i think one of the difficulties for academics in seeking to connect outward, whether it's really with any communities that are not within the university, is that, you know, you get embedded in a certain language, a way of talking about the world. I think especially, say, for social scientists, the way that they talk about what is ordinary lived experience for other people is so different from the way people talk about it themselves that then when you put folks together to try to have a conversation, it can be incredibly difficult. And so some people learn to do that code shifting. I think, you know, that that is, I think the thing you're talking about, JR, is real uh, mm-hmm. in that context, that some people can figure out how to do it and other people find it really difficult or uh, they just don't do it at all. And then the folks they're talking to either feel like they're not actually welcome in the conversation or that they're actively being excluded through the language that's being used. Mm-hmm. Completely. And I think that has to do with the condescension that is perceived sometimes. And it's something I, t- I try to talk to faculty about a lot when I do faculty development. When we had didn't engage faculty institute last year and on the third day faculty members were meeting with their community partners and the day before I said, 
you know, think about the jargon you use. Think about um, speaking in a language that will make sense to someone who works in a nonprofit, you know, hasn't worked in higher ed, doesn't speak the same language. So, for instance, just don't say pedagogy. Just don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's tough because especially if you've, if higher ed is, is what you've known, right, from undergrad on up through your career, you do get used to these ways of communicating and speaking that don't make sense to other people and that are often seen as um, elitist, you know, yeah. and uh-huh. things like that. And so, yeah, it, it, it kind of all does tie together in terms of just that being, you know, more thoughtful about mm-hmm. our language, that kind of thing. And one thing it, it makes me just think about is the uh, the challenge to us of being more systematic and helping people figure out how to do that. In other words, you know, for for those of us who have have had some success in figuring out how to do it, it's just kind of intuitive. But if you say to people, you know, don't use vocabulary that ordinary people don't know, it's not necessarily that easy for them to figure out which of the words they use every single day are the ones that are strange and obtuse and which are the ones that other people might know. So I think like actually, you know, I haven't really thought about that before, how to systematically kind of train people to do that in ways that are transferable and can sort of build that skill across larger groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Li- librarians, I'm telling you, the more I've been thinking about this, librarians are going to save the world. I think they can help translate some of these things for us. So I guess we, we've narrowed it down to aliens or librarians. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, assuming those are two different things. I mean, do we know that? Or are our librarians a superior? You, you make know. a solid point. Yeah, uh, we just don't know. All right. Uh, should <laughs> I move to my, uh, my pop culture corner item for the day? Yeah. Yeah, what do you got? All right. So I find myself very frequently in like Lyft. Lately, it's been Lyft that I've been using, cars that you, you know, dial up on an app. And, um, oh my God, Andrew! People know what Lyft is. <laughs> I was going to say ride sharing, but I, I hate that term because you're not sharing anything, right? It's a you're buying and selling and renting and whatever. I hate that term, so that's why I said that. Uh, but yes, I agree. People know who Lyft, what Lyft is. Um, I even have trouble saying that who Lyft is. I was about to say as if it's a, an alien who carries us around. All right, I'm going to tell you my point. So my driver uh, was a guy named Frank, and it came up that Frank comes from Tanzania, and he was talking about Tanzania and the history of the country, and the his admiration for the first post-colonial president, uh, Julius Nyerere, and his, uh, and, and he said he thought Nyerere pursued terrible economic policies that were really bad for the country based on good intentions, but he said that the reason Nyerere was so important and so Uh, beloved in Tanzania despite that is that he was not corrupt and he essentially would not permit corruption in his government and I was thinking about that then in relation to this podcast that I've been listening to here's here's the pop culture connection called Crime Town which uh, I think the the basic structure will be it's in the first season now but each season I think will focus on a different city and the role of crime in that city and the first season is all about Providence Rhode Island which um, happens to have been the first home of Campus Compact. Uh, but it's a city that... Is for- that is that happenstance? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> listen to the podcast and you be the judge. I think <laughs> is uh, that why it moved? <laughs> that's right. Well, yeah. No comp. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, Providence is a city that it's undergone a lot of change, but for a long time, uh, corruption was just endemic in the city and in the state of Rhode Island. And just thinking about how very difficult it is to root out corruption once it has taken hold. And, you know, I think there are many countries that where that you can point to where this is evident. And, uh, yeah, so for me, that's just been kind of a thing I've been contemplating, how important it is to try to protect our institutions from the kinds of corruption that are routine in many places, because uh, it's much, much easier to do that on the front end than it is to try to undo corruption once it has taken hold and kind of become baked into systems. That is a great podcast. I like true crime stuff, and and that's uh, up, up on the list. Um, the guy who did the Jinx documentary, which is also 
really good. <laughs> I'm going to yeah, have to but, check that out. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. I, I find it's an amazing podcast. I mean, it does remind um, – it reminds one that everybody really does want to tell their story because there are people – every episode on that podcast who say things to the interviewers that – no one should ever say like if you did the things these people did you should probably keep it quiet and take <laughs> it with you to your grave but they get these people to open up about incredible stuff it's it is pretty amazing handsome on a mic right <laughs> yeah it gets them to to open up yeah so before we wrap up we have an exciting announcement right guys that's right yeah so we are going to be doing our first live recording of the Compact Nation podcast. This is going to take place at the Midwest Campus Compact Conference, which is happening June 6th and 7th at Loyola University in Chicago. We will be recording on the second day of the conference, so June 7th. Um, you can still register to attend the conference, so if you'd like to join us in Chicago, uh, our recording will be just one of the many great things that you can be a part of. We'll be interviewing Byron White, who um, leads the Strive Partnership and has done a lot of great work in Ohio around collective impact, asset-based development, those kinds of things. He'll be the keynote speaker of the conference, and then the next day we will interview him um, for the podcast. So we're really excited to try this out. Uh, we get to meet our producer and person at least i do yeah um, me too all of us will be our first meeting yeah okay so we've awesome. been doing all of this remotely so we'll get to meet the wonderful naval madi and be together and recording so wish us luck sign up if you can be there um, register for the conference the early rates uh end sometime in may but you'll still be able to register for a little bit into may so we hope to see you there and certainly check out that podcast which will come out in july final thoughts i don't think so i'm looking forward to the to that we also if i maybe we didn't mention it the bonus podcast if you you might have already seen it in your feed but a uh, conversation i had with nancy thomas about academic freedom uh, and a recent 10th circuit court of appeals decision so hopefully people enjoyed that or if you haven't listened give it a listen oh it's yeah, so really good timely bonus episode with some interesting implications for faculty you know or or others worried about or thinking about the implications of political conversation in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Great. So, so good. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you as always. You Thank too. You. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Make sure to send us your ideas with the hashtag CompactNationPod or at podcast at compact.org. Thank you. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. Hey, Habiba, how was that for an episode? <laughs>